So welcome to another episode of our MAPCAST series. And today we're going to discuss the transatlantic relationship with two very distinguished um, guests. I will start with a gentleman and the screen to my, well, what do you say now? To my left as you look at it, to my right as you're standing. <laughs> Interesting. Rupert, Rupert, okay, Rupert, I'm sorry. Rupert Schlegel-Milsch. Yes, very good. Pretty good. good. Rupert Schlegel-Milsch, Director of DG Trade for Neighboring Countries USA and Canada from the European Commission. Rupert, nice to, from somebody whose last name is Asimakopoulou, I will just, if it's okay with you, I'll be Anna, Michelle, you can be Rupert and that'll be easier for everybody. Welcome, thank you very much for taking the time to be with me today. And Bart Putney, who is the Minister Counselor for the Economic Affair, for Economic Affairs at the U.S. Mission to the U European Union. Bart, thank you very much also for taking the time. We have actually, the three of us have, have had a discussion about the transatlantic, transatlantic relationship maybe six months ago, invited um, by the Conrad Adenauer Stitzboom Foundation, correct, in, in Brussels. <coughs> Things have changed, or maybe they haven't changed so much in the interim. Um, I'm just going to start out by reminding people that the transatlantic relationship has always been a source of stability, a source of uh, well-being for its people, a source of prosperity, a source of innovation, and, and a force for safety in the world. In fact, um, the numbers are, are still very uh, impressive when one looks at the relationship from any aspect. I'm looking at the AmCham EU's 2020 Transatlantic Economy Report, which says that um, there were $5.6 trillion in commercial sales this year, that the relationship account makes up 16 million jobs, both in the EU and the US. It accounts for one third of global GDP. It is half of total global personal consumption. 75% of global digital content is produced by, our, um, by North America and Europe, and that's important, we'll talk about the digital relationship and the free flow of data as well. So for years, this has been an important relationship and a very valuable one for all of us. But of course, we all know there have been tensions and growing tensions. I am at, at the vice chair, as you know, of the International Trade Committee of the European Parliament. And in that capacity, I visited Washington just before COVID-19 changed all our lives and we started going into lockdown. Then we were talking about the mini trade deal. And uh, now it seems like that was a million years ago. So why don't we start um, with uh, you giving us a, maybe a five minute introduction of your perspective on the relationship as it has been developing through your respective roles over time before we focus on what the pandemic has, has done. Rupert, can we start with you, please? Yes, thank you, Anna Michelle. Yes, my name is Rupert Schwegelmilch, and I'm dealing in the European Commission with the directorate, which deals uh, the relationship with the United States. And I think you already said the right thing, in my view, in the beginning. This is the relationship we have in trade. Uh, it is by far the most important. And I'm, I hasten to say it's not only trade, it's also trade and investment. Uh, we invest over half of what we invest worldwide uh, in each other. Uh, that creates much longer and deeper links than just a container in trade, but it's really an interwoven uh, economic tissue. 
uh, which is really unrivaled in the world. And this is, makes this relationship also for us so important economically, but as you very well know, also politically. So where are we now? My job is to make sure that this relationship runs as smoothly as it can. And I think it's fair to say that even before the crisis, we're going to speak about the crisis in a moment, uh, the signs were not all positive. I mean, we had seen uh, a, uh, a trend worldwide, not only maybe in parts of the U.S. Uh, constituencies, a trend to more uh, protectionist policies. Uh, we had the tensions in the triangle or in the U.S.-EU-China uh, triangle. There's, there has been talk about reshoring and decoupling long before this crisis hit us. Uh, and our job here in the Commission is to try to uh, mitigate this and try to make sure that the open uh, economies that we think make uh, the success of this relationship remain. And this is why we have a constant dialogue on these issues uh, with the United States. We had them uh, just up to the crisis and even now on also the irritants, the things that uh, we don't see eye to eye, solving, for example, uh, the conflict on Boeing Airbus subsidies or getting out of a situation where European steel and aluminium products are hit by U.S. safeguard measures. Um, that was a little bit the picture, but we had tried to find the positive. We've been working on this package you meant, on you, you already mentioned, on trade facilitation. Again, to be very clear, this work has not stopped. We're still working as we speak uh, on these issues. Of course, they're drowned out a li little bit by the crisis, but I do think what we really need uh, in this situation is to keep the work strands we have solving the issues, the irritants, and having a positive agenda. But we have to keep that on the radar screen, while at, at the same time we have to deal with the fallout of the crisis, which can make some of these more uh, protectionist measures worldwide, and also, unfortunately, some tendencies in the U.S. even worse in a crisis. So there is a link here. I think we're even, it's even more important to make sure that the two big defenders of free and open markets, the United States and Europe, uh, remain in a good discussion on how to get out now of this crisis. And I think we're going to come back to that in a second. Thanks. Great. Bart, so it's an important relationship from the side of, from the EU. You've heard the, the commission from, from the high level commission official. We want an, oh, we want a dialogue. We want an open relationship. We want to, we want to, we have shared values. We we want to you know keep this going. Give us the 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 other side of of the relationship. What's what's going on on the other side of the of the Atlantic? Again, I I've kept in touch with some of the people I saw during the mission. I understand that this is a difficult time for anything to have any traction. So, what's the U.S. perspective, please? Sure. Thank you, Anna Michelle um, and Rupert. Nice to be with you again. Uh, First of all, in thinking about sort of the other side of the relationship, I, I'm a, I may disappoint to some extent because I'm going to repeat some of the things that Rupert has said, and in fact, some of the things that you said, Anna Michelle, just about where we are in the relationship. I think when we're going through uh, a period of intense uncertainty like this, thinking about what's what's to come, there can be a tendency to um, kind of take a look at recent data points. Uh, recent points of disagreement and to try to extrapolate out to think about where the relationship is going and what the trajectory is. Um, and I think we can fall into a trap of, uh, well, we can draw some, some false conclusions about that trajectory if we um, pick too many uh, small recent data points. So I think 
first of all, when we're we're asking ourselves a big question like what is what is the where is the transatlantic relationship going, it is really important to think about where we've been and uh, what binds us together. And you mentioned some some I think really uh, compelling statistics from the AmCham report at the top. Um, I think that just kind of points to the depth of our relationship and, and a, a strong uh, relationship that we've had for 70 plus years. It's generated immense prosperity and helped keep the peace. Um, and that uh, those, those uh, ties are based upon mutual values that we still share. Um, you know, those, those values are a commitment to uh, rule of law and free, fair and balanced trade, um, human rights, and I think that that foundation gives us the firm footing that we need to go forward um, and to come out the other side of a crisis like this stronger than we are even now. And I think we just need to keep that in mind. Um, when I think it's also particularly important, and we, we might get to uh, this a little bit later on as well, um, when we think about uh, some other powers who are attempting to assert their perspective um, during these these troubled times, so it's it's more important for those of us who do share this fundamental set of values to remind ourselves that that's what keeps us together and to to uh, chart a course that's based upon those those shared values. Um, I, I wanted to just mention um, when you, you mentioned some of the economic ties that bind us together during a, a health crisis like this. I think it might also be useful to think about the scientific cooperation that we share on uh, just a few data points that might be worthwhile there. Uh, our United States uh, National Science Foundation currently supports over a thousand active awards uh, in which American researchers collaborate with European scientists. Our National Institutes of Health uh, make several thousand awards to European scientists each year. And uh, there are several hundred EU scientists currently working in NIH laboratories. So if you add up, um, those, those economic ties that you mentioned earlier, the scientific ties, we have ties between our universities. You know, these, we have, we're bound together by thousands and thousands of threads, um, these business trade and university and research relationships built upon the, that shared perspective. Uh, it doesn't mean we don't have disagreements, of course. Uh, Rupert mentioned some of the things that we've been trying to work our way through, um, you know, whether it's uh, subsidies in the civil aviation, or uh, trying to put together a trade package. Um, and anyway, we just need to continue working on those. We do continue working on those. Uh, we need to keep rolling up our sleeves and hopefully um, find some wins and wins can help uh, lead to more wins. Uh, but we do also have to think creatively about uh, how we can work together through this current crisis and find areas where a joint coordinated approach can really help us emerge better on the other side. Well, there seem, there, there's definitely a positive spirit and uh, obviously I wouldn't be having this discussion if I weren't a big fan of the transatlantic relationship, but here's another, another statistic, um, Bart, a European statistic. I don't, I, I don't really know, maybe you can tell us what the EU statistics are, but according to the European uh, predictions, there'll be seven and a half percent recession uh, this, this year. Um, in the European Union, um, and the truth is nobody really knows what the extent of the recession is because nobody really knows what the pandemic is going to do in its subsequent phases. But I can tell you that I think that, you know, the agenda we were discussing in Washington 
um, and what we were discussing in INTA and what we were hearing from the commission and from Commissioner Hogan and what I guess what what um, what Junger had put as a you know as an agenda, which is what the commission what we were following until um, until this term seems sort of outdated, you know, talking about lobster tariffs or I don't know, you know, the Airbus Boeing dispute when the airlines are <laughs> struggling to survive after COVID-19. So why don't we go backwards, Bart? What, what do you think, I mean, I know Rupert will tell us about the initiatives of the commission now for this, like this transatlantic recovery agenda that, that Commissioner Hogan has put on the table. But what is really the, you know, is there a shift? Is there a, a mindset shift or is there, is there a, a COVID-19 filter uh, to, to where this relationship should go now in terms of trade or in terms of investments or, you know, and, and how does, you mentioned other powers, how does China and what's going on with China affect the way the relationship is going to go forward in the future after what's what's happening with with the pandemic i think those are some really good questions um and big questions obviously in in thinking though about how things have changed um one of the things that's been interesting as we talk to eu officials is the determination to still uh focus the recovery effort on things like a digital agenda and a green agenda. So from our perspective, uh, as partners, we, we will pay close attention to that and think about how that agenda meshes with um, where we would like to go. Um, so yeah, we've, we've heard officials say that they don't wanna bounce back uh, after the crisis, they wanna bounce forward. And I think that's kind of an interesting turn of phrase. Um, so if bounce, part of bouncing forward means a, a robust agenda for digital cooperation, we're all for that. One of the things that has, um, I don't know if concern might be overstating it, but we hear, hear people talking about digital sovereignty um, as, as part of the equation for the EU going forward as a, as a real priority. And if digital sovereignty, um, well, it seems to mean different things to different people. When, when some officials talk about it, it sounds like a euphemism for import substitution. Um, it's a, a matter of putting up walls, keeping out competition, and protecting EU infant industries. And if, if that is the perspective, if that's the way things play out, then obviously it limits the, uh, the scope for our cooperation going forward. But if, the, if digital sovereignty is interpreted in a different way based upon values instead of geography, um, then there is immense opportunity for cooperation. Um, and uh, Rupert and I have spoken about this in other contexts, uh, the importance of us getting together to define the rules of the road going forward for emerging technology. So whether we're talking about quantum computing or AI or robotics, that it, it makes sense for us, given our shared values, to really um, think about what those rules should be and set those rules so that others aren't setting them for us. Um, and if I don't know if Rupert, if you want to jump in here or I can go on. I don't want to give Rupert a chance to talk. Very happy to pick up the ball here, Adam Michelle, if you let me. Please. Um, I, I think there is, there is a lot of um, things that I would subscribe to. I think some things obviously 
will change as a result of this crisis, but some things will just remain as important and as valuable. And the digital agenda that Bart mentioned is certainly getting a boost through all of this. Uh, you know, the fact that we're sitting here and doing this digitally is very small proof of that. Right. We're actually seeing that many things can be done uh, using digital means that maybe otherwise would have taken more time to catch on. Uh, and there, and I'm not only talking about video conferencing, obviously. So I do think um, that there will be new focus on many things that we have been doing, including the Commission's work program, and the, the hope that also we get a, a quicker transition maybe to some of the sustainability issues we're pursuing. But what will stay the same as far as we are concerned, the DG Trade, that's for sure, is the openness of the economy. Uh, we don't believe that um, this should lead to massive reshoring. We have a health crisis. We don't have a globalization crisis, let's put it like this. Uh, obviously, we were not prepared. Some products we demand increased 50 times, like for some of these gowns and masks. But that's not going to stay like that. Once you have a stock for this thing, uh, for sure. the next time, you don't have to have big restrictions. You just have to maybe have a strategic reserve for these things. Um, and the same is true for the, the, the uh, iconic product ventilators. Uh, a ventilator has 900 different parts. If you all want to produce them in one place, you're just as dependent on other things then suddenly um, as you're now. But what we do need is to take a big, bit more care, I think, to look at dependencies on some of these very critical things. Uh, I think it's not a good thing that we're overly dependent on one or two sources for active uh, pharmaceuticals ingredients or for some of the products which came into play, there's only one source in the world. That obviously is a question of not so much reshoring, but of diversification. Uh, and we believe that the, um, the commission will have to use this terminology uh, very carefully and the question of what is sovereignty and so on. Uh, we use this word strategic autonomy now, but I think we like to put the word open in front of it, open strategic economy, and not sort of closed uh, um, economy that, uh, that some people might be thinking uh, with a massive industrial policy coming back. Uh, certainly that's not the way uh, the, the, the trade and investment system, the globalization functions. Uh, there will be some tweaks to it, that's very clear, because of the health issues, for example, but we don't intend to uh, deglobalize massively at all. Um, I just, well, so, so strategic, open strategic autonomy, which basically means diversification of supply chains, but still, I mean, the, clearly this trade, when we discuss trade in the parliament, it's always value-based, correct? It's always about common values as well. It's always about, okay, it's about our green agenda, but it's always about respecting um, human rights or labor rights or things like this, things that bring us together. So even when you're talking about strate open strategic autonomy and diversification, of supply chains, you get to choose your partners, correct? Isn't that the way it goes? So, I mean, if, if, if values can bring you together, in my mind, uh, this may be a very good opportunity for us to, to remember um, what can take us forward in this, in this cooperation. Um, I'm also a, a big fan of, since we're gonna have supposedly one of the, maybe the greatest recession since the Great Depression, which in Greece, in Greece seems like a joke to us because we've been going through that for the past 10 years. So we know exactly what that feels like. But um, maybe, the, maybe the new deal is a, the digital deal. I, I hear some good, some good traction on that. 
Um, I, I thank you both for, for giving us such, such great perspective on this, but Rupert, before we, we close with, with Bart, could you, um, could you tell us a little bit about Commissioner Hogan's initiative? This is, this is a letter, this is, this is a proposal, if I understand, for a, a, a transatlantic recovery agenda. Is that, the, is that the way we describe it? Could you tell us what it includes? And then um, could you also touch briefly on, I'm, I'm the, the rapporteur on the, shadow rapporteur on the enforcement regulation amendment, which is tied into this WTO standstill we're we're at massive changes in the in the WTO um, recently. So could you close your by giving us some information both on these topics on what's going on, what the what the commission and the EU is doing with the WTO and also what Commissioner Hogan's latest transatlantic initiative is about. Thank you, Anna Michelle. I think that's that ties in very well with the point you made on values. I mean the whole point why we think it's for the uh, United States and the European Union to give the adequate response, not only for the short term, but also for the mid and long term, is because we have the same value. You already raised the question of China, uh, where we have a, a different set uh, different economic policies and different views on the rules and the values. And I think part of the agenda is actually to have a targeted cooperation agenda on how to deal with some of the issues which are not within our values or with our strategic uh, interests on security, uh, which is linked to the question very often of human rights. So part of the proposal is to cooperate a lot more in technology. Uh, where is the borderline between open trade and safeguarding our interests uh, when it comes to uh, human rights, security, export controls, etc. Uh, the other part is obviously also linked very much to the WTO, and this is the question, how do you get out of this massive oversubsidiation or subsidiation? We're all doing it now. We all think it's necessary because the prediction that you mentioned of 7% or more percent contraction, uh, I think the, the Fed and others have, in the US have even uh, had other numbers which are even worse. That means we now have to have short-term measures, but once that's over, how do we get out of it? Uh, because the, you know, the one country which is still producing more steel through all this crisis is not in the room today. That's they will flood. So, and that's where you need the WTO in the end. This is where the link is to rules, which only I think the United States, the US uh, the, and Europe and maybe the other like-minded open liberal democracies can finally ho hopefully make those uh, except who do not believe in uh, a, a, a market-based economy and who use this opportunity maybe to get even bigger share, to put it bluntly, of the world markets. So the WTO needs to be reformed, that's very clear. Uh, part of the proposal uh, is, is WTO reform, so I just go down very quickly the list now. There is the short-term question of not doing more than absolutely needed right now. There is the whole cooperation agenda to set a positive signal that includes issues like that Bart has mentioned also on medical and pharma cooperation, where we have reg regulatory cooperation. The third one is the whole question of how do you deal with the level playing field and subsidies. The fourth one is the WTO angle. And then the fifth one, which we throw in for good measure, is that we don't make things worse in the conflicts, which is, of course, the Boeing and steel disputes, where hitting each other with further tariffs is exactly the recipe that we want to avoid. So I'll, I'll stop here because this is, gives you the waterfront of these five proposals. Bart, and, and how, does that, how does all that sound? <laughs> Uh, 
It's an ambitious agenda. Uh, we support a lot of it. Um, we have some disagreements about the details here and there, but that's why Rupert and I have jobs, I suppose. Um, just uh, coming, coming back to the, the, the broader China point, um, clearly we have some concerns about uh, China's lack of transparency in the way that they approach this crisis. Um, and it's raised, I, I think it's um, raised people's awareness of, of certain elements of uh, the Chinese Communist Party's approach uh, to these, um, well, in this crisis, throughout this crisis, we've seen some competing agendas um, that have really been uh, disturbing, uh, talking in, on the one hand, blaming the U.S. Uh, for the crisis, on the other, uh, talking up the supremacy of the Chinese Communist Party's approach to the crisis. Um, I, I think both of those are cause for concern. I think throughout this crisis, we've also, um, seen the importance of paying attention to things like investment screening, uh, intellectual property rights, um, the, the, the flood of goods coming into, uh, well, into the EU that have been substandard or uh, um, fake goods and the, the problems that those have caused have kind of highlighted the IPR um, issue and uh, our sort of reinforced the importance of our working together on those sorts of things. Um, and I think just in general, I think of the, the pandemic and uh, how, how it um, in a way is a, a, a metaphor for what, well, our response to it is in some ways about building up our own antibodies as uh, democratic uh, countries uh, and institutions and, and building up our support for the free market and our defenses against um, other influences that would do those institutions harm. So I, I, um, I, I like hearing Rupert talk about their robust agenda because it does um, align us in so many ways in, uh, in strengthening our democracies and strengthening our market economies so that we do emerge from this stronger. Well, I can tell you that the, the parliament's been very vocal um, on, on with, with respect to China. I mean, you may, you may have heard that last week we were rather irate um, at the fact that it turns out that um, some, you know, some documents were changed not to highlight, you know, China's behavior. Uh, um, and um, also, um, I don't know, also if you heard um, Manfred Weber, I'm, I'm talking about the EPP, um, who today said, um, you know, talked about the fact that, you know, we should not only maybe screen more for Chinese investment, in in uh, the near future, but we might even just put a moratorium on it for a while until we figure out what's going on and how we can move toward this open strategic autonomy that Rupert was talking about and make sure that we've um, we've got things sort of under control and under management. So um, that'll be the the agenda going forward. So but with thanking both of you for your time, I would just ask. Um, I, I'll tell you that I, I've given the transatlantic relationship a lot of thought in the one year that I've been in the parliament. I'm a new MEP. I was thrown into the trade committee and, and this is something I focused on. And when I, um, when I think about why, what the most important thing for me is in the transatlantic relationship, um, it's, it's the fact that, that there has to be democracy is maybe because I'm Greek, 
democracy is the, the, the core value around which I think that this relationship needs to solidify and go, go forward. Um, any, any aspect of it you look at, whether it's investment, whether it's digital cooperation, whether it's the protection of privacy rights, whether it's trade, I think that we have to keep in mind that at the moment there's a big, there's a big crisis in democracy being effective and accountable to the people. And I think that the transatlantic relationship is that is that is one of the most strong, let's say, bonds in the transatlantic relationship. So Rupert, what would be the the key factor you think you're very experienced in this? What what do you think the key let's say building block or the key factor in this relationship is? That's, well, I think the one relationship that we've always, I think, need to be fully exploiting is the people-to-people, -people, stakeholders relationships. This is not something that people in uh, office buildings in Brussels and Washington will construct or have constructed in the past. I think it's really important that we bring all people who have an interest in democracy and keeping the values up from society into this dialogue. And this is what happened after the war, which is still uh, a foundation. The people that actually have the actual people-to-people -people experience are those who carry the wall in the end. Right. And Bart? Well, I, I think that's an excellent point that we can uh, talk a lot about uh, the government-to-government -government connections that we have, and that's very important. Um, but perhaps it's most important because it facilitates the rather organic, natural um, development of those other ties that Rupert just mentioned. Excellent. Thank you both very much. And, and uh, on a people-to-people -people basis, on a uh, on a uh, parliament to commission to uh, re to the U.S. representation basis, thank you very much. Stay, stay. You're both in Brussels, right? Because I'm still in Athens, so I look forward to seeing you in person in the near future. And thank you again for your time.